If you would, open your Bibles to Ezra chapter 6, and then either stick your finger there or put a piece of paper, and then turn to Haggai or Haggai chapter 2. We're studying at least three books in this series that we've started, Ezra, Haggai, and Nehemiah. We might do Zechariah and Malachi, I'm not sure at this point. Thus far in the book of Ezra, the lessons we have learned, hopefully, is that first of all, we see that historical activities that we attribute perhaps to human causes are in fact the Lord's doing, beginning with a decision by a pagan king, Cyrus the Persian, to have the temple in Jerusalem rebuilt. It's not something he came up with on his own. We're told in the first verse of Ezra, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of the king of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it into writing. We might wonder why would a pagan king be concerned about a destroyed temple and want it to be rebuilt? But we are told that the Lord moved in his heart. And the second thing is we saw that the Lord also moved the heart of the leadership and the people in exile to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. In this account, the temple is central. It does involve a return from exile, but it is a return with a purpose. They are going back to the Holy Land, to the Promised Land, to Jerusalem with a purpose, and that is to rebuild the temple. And the third thing that we've seen the last two weeks is that in the face of these amazing turns of events, a pagan king says, you guys need to rebuild this temple, and returns the gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar had taken, Uh, People give very generously toward this project. They go, they lay the foundation. It's really quite amazing. And in the face of this, there arises opposition. Which really might surprise us because we would think, well, if this is the Lord's doing, then there should be no opposition. It should just be sort of clear sailing, uh, smooth sailing, uh, a clear path. And yet we find that there was opposition, which takes different forms. And by the way, from now until the end of the book of Nehemiah, we will find ongoing opposition. It either takes the form of compromise, the temptation to compromise, or attempts to make people fearful, to discourage people. And finally, if those things don't work, or if they don't work as well as one might want, then in fact there is direct opposition going to the authorities, going to the king and saying, what these people are doing is rebellion. What we saw last Sunday was that the enemies of the Jews made at least three attempts to get royal action to stop the work on the temple. During the reign of Xerxes, they they lodged an accusation. They sent a letter to Artaxerxes. And then they sent a second letter to Artaxerxes, which, in fact, we have here in uh, in the book of Ezra. Just a side note. uh, The letter, we are told, is written in Aramaic. And so while the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, this particular portion of it is in Aramaic because it is a verbatim uh, transcription of the letter that was sent. The letter is full of false accusations. We know that these are false because we know what the letter said. As a result of this, Artaxerxes decides to go through the archives. And... One of the things about working in archives, you need to have context. Artaxerxes did not. He was reading about David and Solomon, which was some 500 years previously. 
But based on that reading, he orders the work on the temple to come to a halt. Then last week, we came to chapter 5, verse 1, and this is where Haggai is introduced. If you look at chapter 5, verse 1, Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Ido, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So these two prophets emerge uh, here in our, in our uh, study. Haggai or Haggai, it's pronounced both ways, and I will probably go back and forth, and Zechariah. And along with Malachi, these are the three prophets that uh, emerge after the exile, after the time in Babylon and then under the Persians. The book of Haggai, as we saw, consists of four sermons. All of them preached between August and December of the year 520 B.C. Uh, last Sunday we also looked at something with regard to the whole business of prophecy. By the way, I'm glad to do what we're doing, and that is to look at historical books as well as prophetic books at the same time. Because somehow I think we have a different attitude toward them that one is either to be taken seriously or not, and the other one is to be taken seriously or not. But the, the two together, we rarely see them combined. But here we find that Haggai is mentioned, and now we have a context for the four sermons that are written in the two chapters of his book. Anyway, last Sunday we saw with regard to prophecy and prophets that there is the gift of prophecy, there is the office of the prophet, and they're not the same. That someone, in fact, may in fact have the gift of prophecy, Daniel did, but he was not a prophet. He was not in the category of prophet. And we have those who are prophets who don't have the gift of prophecy. See, a prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of someone else. And so one need not have the gift to somehow be able to speak of things that are yet to come to be a prophet. If one, in fact, speaks on behalf of God based on God's law, one is a prophet. And then last Sunday we also saw the organic connection between prophecy and history that God is in the Old Testament unfolding his purposes of redemption that will lead to the Messiah. And this isn't just something that's in the prophetic books, it's also in the historical books. And so they should be studied together. Prophecy must coexist with history that God's will might be known. That's why we're studying Ezra and Haggai together. It is at this point here in chapter 5 that the work on the temple has been halted. It stopped for 16 years. They had laid the foundations and then Artaxerxes tells them to stop and for 16 years no work is done. And at this point Haggai Haggai appears on the scene and his first sermon takes place between chapter 5 verse 1 and verse 2. So if somehow you could and it'll cut and paste and put Haggai, he would go right in there between the first two verses of Ezra chapter 5. Ezra is speaking on behalf of God. In Haggai 1.1, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Verse number 2, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Verse 3, then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Verse 5, now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Verse 7, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I think we may not take this as seriously as we should, partly because we, are, we have scripture, but also I think we are accustomed to people saying, well, the Lord told me. Uh, when in fact, I, I would argue that the Lord did not tell them. They might in fact have had a, a, a hunch. Um, 
But I think we really fail to appreciate how serious it is when an authentic word of God comes to the prophet Haggai and it is not only authentic, it is it has authority. It is authoritative. For the Jews, this must have been amazing because a word from the Lord had not been heard for decades. They've been there for 16 years. They've not worked on the temple for 16 years and there's been no word of the, from the Lord in that period and now there is. And the word is that they are to get back to work on the temple. And what do they do? They do exactly what they are told. In Haggai chapter 1 verse 12, Then Zerubbabel son of Shealtiel and Joshua son of Jehozadak the high priest and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. So why did they obey? Because the Lord had in fact sent Haggai and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So this, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Jeltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Jeho- uh, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. I am with you, the Lord tells them. And then the Lord stirs up their spirits. Of the leadership, you have the political leadership, uh, Zerubbabel, and you have the religious leadership with Joshua and the whole remnant of the people. And 23 days after the word of the Lord comes to Haggai and he tells it to the people, they get back to work. Now we go back to Ezra chapter 5, verse 2. And we find out that Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Jehozadak, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, helping them. So it's confirmed. What we read in Haggai is now written in Ezra that people got back to work. So what happens? A word of the Lord comes through God's man, the prophet. People get back to work, and what happens? The opposition is renewed. There's a new king. It's not Artaxerxes anymore, it's Darius. Darius had been an officer, a military officer in the Persian army. Uh, He fought in Egypt. And apparently it seems that he was in Egypt when the king died. And a usurper took the throne. So Darius rushes back uh, to the capital. He unseats the throne, uh, the usurper from the throne, and he takes the throne. He was successful in doing so and in fact history tells us he was one of the greatest kings of the Persian Empire. Uh, I think the one stain on his record is that he was not able to defeat the Greeks at Marathon. That's perhaps what he's best known for in Western history. He retakes the throne but there are rumors of rebellions all throughout the empire. It is at this point that the enemies of God's people decide to send a letter to Darius and they say to him uh, these people are rebellious and you better watch out for them and this in in fact humanly speaking this is the perfect time to write Darius I mean this is the time because he'll just it would seem smack them down because he he can't have rebellions all over the empire he needs some stability we looked at this last Sunday and I'll just mention a couple of things 
It's interesting that the enemies of God's people use the words of God's people to indict them. Apparently they think this will really, really get them in trouble. But in fact, what we find in their testimony is a confession of sin. If you look at chapter 5, verse 12, but because our fathers angered the God of heaven, he handed them over to Nebuchadnezzar, the Chaldean, king of Babylon, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. There is a confession of sin. Our ancestors have sinned. That's why this happened. And then secondly, there is an acknowledgement of the providence of God. The next verse. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild this house of God. Verse 14. He even removed from the temple of Babylon the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to the temple in Babylon. So, they send the letter, they tell Darius these people are trouble, and they suggest that he go back through the archives and look at the history of these people. If you've been with us thus far, you're thinking, no, please, oh no, don't go to the archives. The last time someone did this, it didn't end up very well. The work on the temple was halted for 16 years. But Darius does go to the archives. And this is where we will begin reading today in chapter 6, verse number 1. King Darius then issued an order and they searched in the archives stored in the treasury at Babylon. A scroll was found in the citadel at Ekbatana in the province of Midia. And this was written on it. Memorandum. In the first year of King Cyrus, the king issued a decree concerning the temple of God in Jerusalem. Let the temple be built as a place to present sacrifices and let its foundations be laid. It is to be 90 feet high and 90 feet wide with three courses of large stones and one of timbers. The costs are to be paid by the royal treasury. Also the gold and silver articles of the house of God which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon are to be returned to their places in the temple in Jerusalem. They are to be deposited in the house of God. Based on what he saw in the Persian records, not the Babylonian records, which is what Artaxerxes did, he sees, in fact, that what they're doing is, this is what Cyrus wanted them to do. Cyrus the Persian had said, this is what you're supposed to do. What Artaxerxes had done, as we saw last week, is he'd gone back 500 years to David and Solomon when Israel was in fact a rather large kingdom and so it was seen as a threat. That was 500 years ago. Darius goes to the writings of Cyrus and he finds a memo, a memorandum, that in fact Cyrus had said that the temple is to be rebuilt. So Darius answers the petitioners in verse number 6. Now then, Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar, Bozenai, and you, their fellow officials of that province, stay away from there. Do not interfere with the work on this temple of God. Let the governor of the Jews and the Jewish elders rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I hereby decree what you are to do for these elders of Jews in the construction of the house of God. The expenses of these men are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury from the revenues of trans-Euphrates, so that the work will not stop. Whatever is needed, young bulls, rams, male lambs for burnt offerings for the God of heaven, and wheat, salt, wine, and oil, as requested 
by the priests in Jerusalem must be given them daily without fail so that they may offer sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the well-being of the king and his sons. Furthermore, I I decree that if anyone changes this edict, a beam is to be pulled from his house and he is to be lifted up and impaled on it. And for this crime, his house is to be made a pile of rubble. May God, who has caused his name to dwell there, overthrow any king or people who lifts a hand to change this decree or to destroy this temple in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have decreed it. Let it be carried out with diligence. Then, because of the decree King Darius had sent, Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar, Bozanai, and their associates carried it out with diligence. Yeah. Um, Beyond the harsh language, and it is rather harsh, you know, if in fact you oppose, if you go against what I've said, we want to pull a beam out of your house and impale you on it and then tear down your house. I think what should stand out to us beyond the harsh language is the provision made for construction, for sacrifices, and for protection. The expenses for the rebuilding of the temple are to come out of the royal treasury. In other words, the taxes, the duties that are collected in what is known as trans-Euphrates, we would call it Canaan or the promised land, it is to stay there and it is to go toward the rebuilding of the temple. It is somewhere in this time frame that we have the final three sermons of Haggai. So if you would turn to Haggai chapter 2. It's Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi the end of the Old Testament. So let's look at the first nine verses here of Haggai chapter 2. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it seem like, does it seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and the desired of all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Again, the reader is reminded of the nature of the message. The word of the Lord came through Haggai. I mentioned last week that the expression in the King James, thus saith the Lord, is found 415 times in the Old Testament. It is to give authority to what is being said. It is the basis of the message. It is the basis of the authority of the message. The date of the message is the 21st day of the seventh month. We know, if you compare uh, the calendars, it is the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. 
the people gather in Jerusalem for this feast. And what they do is they live outdoors. They camp out. It is to remind them of what it was like back in the wilderness. And it is to give thanks to God that they no longer live in booths or tabernacles. They actually now have houses. But God was with them in their time in the wilderness. So they're in Jerusalem for this. But in fact, they've probably been there for much of this month. The first day of the month is the beginning of the Feast of Trumpets. The tenth day is the Day of Atonement. And then the fifteenth day is when the Feast of Booths or or Tabernacles begins. So for much of this month, the people have been in Jerusalem. And now at the end of their time together of doing what they should in worshiping God, the word of the Lord comes to Haggai. He is to ask them something. The political leadership, Zerubbabel, the religious leadership, and the people. Is there anybody around who remembers who was alive when Solomon's temple was here? No doubt it was a magnificent building. And as we saw earlier in our series, when they laid the foundation, there were those who wept because they remembered what it looked like back in the old days and this wasn't going to come close. I think there was, in fact, a natural tendency to compare, but there's also nostalgia and sentimentality. What they were going to build would pale in comparison. It would not be like Solomon's temple. They don't have the resources to match it. David had collected resources all during his reign and then gave them to Solomon, and Solomon also collected and built this magnificent temple. And now you have 40,000 exiles, that's the count given to us, and they're supposed to rebuild the temple, and it's, it's not going to look like the first one did. At this point in the project, there is little to show for all their efforts. And they have fallen into the trap that I think we all do at certain points in our lives. And that is they compared the present with the past. And the past looked golden. It looked wonderful. And the present does not. And if we fall into that trap, It undermines any efforts we have in the present time. Why should I continue? It's never going to be as good as it was. Does it seem, does it not seem to you like nothing? Like, yeah, this is a shack. This is nothing compared to what was there before. I'm a historian, so I enjoy studying the past, but in fact, the past can rob the present of possibilities because people throw their hands up and say, it'll never be as good as it was. By the way, just a side note, I often suspect that it was not as good in the past as we imagined it to be. Um, But because of faulty memory, we imagine that that was perfect and this is just really pathetic compared to that. So three times, Josh, or uh, Haggai says, be strong. Be strong, O Zerubbabel. Be strong, O Joshua. Be strong, all you people of the land. And work. It is not enough that they be strong, but they are to work. What is it, some kind of pep talk? Is this like, rah-rah, let's, let's go get them, give it the old college try? No. The Lord says, for I am with you. This is what I covenanted with you. My spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is not some kind of pep talk. They are to be strong 
They are to have courage because God is with them. His spirit is with them. He made a promise to them. They are not to be afraid. And yet there's even more. There's even more to this, why they should get to work. In verses 6 through 9, the language becomes uh, difficult, I guess the way to put it, because we seem to be tied to uh, something being literal. And I don't think what is intended is literal at all. There will be divine intervention. This is what it means. I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. If you look at the other prophetic writings, you see language like this. It's not literal. It speaks that God, in fact, will... God is always at work in his creation, but he will, in a very special way, intervene in human history. In a little while, the desired of all the nations will come. This is the Messiah. This is a messianic promise. I will fill this house with glory. This is also a reference to the coming of the Messiah. And then we are told that glory is not found in silver and gold. Those things belong to God. Even that which Cyrus returned to the people of God. Um, even when Darius says, listen, all, the, it's all expenses paid. We'll take care of this. Don't worry about it. Um, God, in fact, is in control. Two promises are made. The first is that the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Both of these promises are messianic promises. One should be reminded of what the heavenly host said when Jesus was born. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. We'll stop here. Um, I had thought to look at the final two sermons, but... I must confess that my heart is heavy. Uh, May God speak to us through his word. I will tell you this in closing, that the work on the temple continued. And four years later, it was completed. This is back in Ezra 6. So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, descendant of Ido. They finished building the temple according to the command of the God of Israel, and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia. The temple was completed on the third day of the month Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of Darius. Then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles, celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. For the dedication of this house of God, they offered a hundred bulls, two hundred rams, four hundred male lambs, and a sin offering for all Israel, twelve male goats, one for each of the tribes of Israel. And they installed the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their groups for the service of God at Jerusalem according to what is written in the book of Moses. On the 14th day of the first month, the exiles celebrated the Passover. The uh, the priests and Levites had purified themselves and were all ceremonially clean. The Levites slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the exiles, for their brothers, the priests, and for themselves. So the Israelites who had returned from exile ate it together with all who had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbors in order to seek the Lord, the God of Israel. For seven days they celebrated with joy the Feast of Unleavened Bread because the Lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria so that he assisted them in the work 
on the house of God, the God of Israel. They were able to get it done. The Lord was with them. The word of the Lord came through Haggai the prophet, told them, be strong, be strong, be strong. I am with you. My spirit remains among you. I've made this promise. And though the language is something they may not understand at that point, the glory of this temple will be greater because the Messiah is coming. The Lord Jesus, the Son of God, is coming. Don't just look at the externals. Because if you do that, if you're not careful, you'll be looking back at Solomon's temple. But this is the work of God, and he is with his people. And may we have a sense of his presence with us uh, during this difficult time. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, that you are with your people at all times, in good times and in difficult times. And you've promised to be with us. You will never leave us or forsake us. And as you were with the Jews hundreds of years ago as they rebuilt the temple, something that would not look externally as magnificent as what Solomon had built. But it is this temple to which the Messiah will come. The desire of the nations. I thank you that your promise is true that you will be with us. May we in a special way have a sense of your presence in the coming days. We pray for the Griote family that you would give them peace, comfort, the decisions to be made, you would give them wisdom and harmony in the family. Again, we thank you for Mike and our memories of him. Though we are sad, we rejoice to know that he is with you. How wonderful that must be. Thank you for bringing us together on this Sunday. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.